Well, last time we stopped in verse 4 of chapter 1 of 2 Peter, but we are going to pick back up in verse 12. For this reason, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am with you in this tent, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. So Peter knows he's going to die. And I think that characterizes much of the feeling of his letter. And last week I tried to describe it. It, it felt like a CEO who was stepping down from the, from the company under the best of terms and, and saying, you know, I'm not always going to be here. And I founded this company, but even when I'm gone, this is what you guys need to cling to. And as I begin to continue to think about that, it also kind of feels like a commencement speech. Because that previous metaphor didn't really do it justice. And it's a commencement speech because it's almost like the, the body of believers that Peter was ministering to were graduating from his immediate vicinity. Even though he was the one that was leaving, he said, hey, we've spent this time together. We've shared all these things, and, and that time's about to come to an end. But here I want to punctuate it. I want to put an exclamation mark and an underline of all the time we've spent together. When I'm not here, this is what I want you to take. And just like a commencement speech, he's not going to teach them anything new. He says right there, you're established in this present truth. But he wants to stir them up. He wants to remind them. And he wants to stir them up because it's part of our human nature to settle over time. I think about the experience of remembering a really good book versus like those nights when you couldn't put it down. Or if you're not a reader, maybe a movie. Imagine watching that amazing movie for the first time. And as I was thinking about this, the movie that came to mind for me, I remember the first time, I don't know if this movie's appropriate, because it's been a long time since I've seen it, but the memories are always censored. The first time I saw the movie, The Usual Suspects. And the whole movie goes through Kevin Spacey playing one character, and it's in the last minute of the movie that this whole time he'd, he'd been limping. So person, he couldn't have been the person that did these things. That he's, and then in the last 30 seconds of the movie, you see his feet passing under a car, and one stride is like this, and then the next stride, he just starts walking normal. And you realize this whole time he was Kaiser Soze, and it just like blows your mind. And you're like, well, it's just kind of a cool story. But okay, you weren't there. And that's exactly the point. Okay? The experience that we have after the fact is never quite the same as living it. You know, it's, it's that sparkle in the eyes of newlyweds. You know, as that love grows and, and matures, it doesn't lessen. 
But, but that experience, that, that sparkle is, is a little different just because of the way our feelings settle over time. That the constant presence of a thing diminishes the impact it has on us. Not it's important, but even if we take it and look at it in, in, in not positive terms, or not positive terms, if there's a, a loud buzzing or a noise or you're always in a loud environment, you, you don't notice anymore when you're in a loud environment. It doesn't make it any quieter. But we just become sensitized to it. And that's okay, that's very healthy because otherwise we would be overstimulated, oversensitized. But there can be good reasons to stir those things back up. I imagine, or not imagine, I can remember times, now it's so easy with digital photographs to, you don't have to get out a book, but just flipping through and looking at wedding pictures of me and my wife. And, and you have that feeling, oh, I just want to give my wife a hug. You know, I remember we were so young and, and skinny. And, but, or it's like, it's like you go back and you, you dust off the high school yearbook and you're, you're looking at it and you're smiling and, and for, a, for a brief moment, the, your back stops hurting. And the thought of lifting something heavy doesn't cause you to audibly groan. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it brings life back into you, these, these stirring up of feelings and emotions. And a lot of times, those things that stir us up can be tied to a place or a person or a smell or a sound, any number of senses. We all have that thing that our mom used to make where you smell it and it's like, oh, that just, that smells like home. That reminds me of my childhood. Or when we go to a place, maybe we go to the place where we first met our spouse or we see the same kind of car as the first car we had. And it brings back memories. And I can't help but think that Peter was that person for many of the brothers and sisters that he's writing to as they came to a new understanding, a new realization, a new revelation of the life that they had in Christ, that experience was in some sense associated with Peter. Seeing Peter would bring a smile to their face, or hearing from Peter would bring a smile to their face because of the impact that he had on their faith, or because of how he was a contemporary to this experience they had of the birthing of the early church and Pentecost, all these things. And they're not going to have that anymore. He's not going to send them another letter. He's not going to be passing through town. So he says, I want to write this down. I want to write this down because those feelings that you have, that when you remember those things, that's good that you should be stirred up, that you shouldn't forget. And so what does he say? What does he say in order to do this? Let's go back up to verse 5. 
But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance, to perseverance godliness, to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love. For if these things are yours and abound, you will neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Verse 5, but also for this very reason. What reason? Well, he's referencing back to the introduction when he, when he greeted them and he said in verse 3, because God's divine power has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Because our relationship with our Heavenly Father in verse 4 has afforded us exceedingly great and precious promises. For the reason that our union with the Lord has made us new creations. New creations capable and destined to be made more and more and more like Jesus by being partakers in the divine nature. Peter's saying, for these reasons, because of this, on the one side of the scale, for these reasons, everything that you have already received, give all diligence. And the concept of diligence is so key to this passage because if we get this one wrong, it mutes everything else that Peter has to say. Linguistically speaking, diligence, the word, points at the concept of moving quickly, to make haste, to, to hurry something along. And that's not necessarily what we associate diligence with. But you'll see how the one concept tied into our, our present working understanding of the word. Because the real issue here has to do with our part in what God is doing. You see, sanctification is not automatic. You know, Paul exhorts the Philippians to work out your faith with fear and trembling. And sometimes we're so careful not to preach a works-based gospel that we neglect the truth that our relationship with Jesus is not casual and it's not extracurricular. It is, in fact, a lot of work. And Peter here is telling us that we need to be diligent. We need to hurry up the effort. We need to push along this work of sanctification. And maybe hard work isn't, isn't the best word because of the negative connotations that we can have about that. Maybe investment is a better concept. Investment. Because this work that Peter is calling us to put in is not dreaded, it's not 
out of duty. When we think work, it's like, okay, you gave me a paycheck, so I'll show up and do what you told me to do. But in investment, there's, it's, a, it's a win-win situation. I am, I am happy to give Tesla my money if they're going to give it back in a year, you know, 130%. They say, do something that you love and you'll never work a day in your life. And I think that points at this concept. Because if this diligence, if this work is fueled by our love for Christ, then it doesn't feel like work. And if it does feel like work in that sense, then we need to check our hearts. Like something, something is wrong. And, and the reality is, I don't think a lot of us I can't imagine a motivation outside of a workspace theology that we could begrudgingly invest in our faith. The reality is we either do or we don't. We decide not to. We don't like bitterly, oh, well, you know, I know this is what I'm supposed to do. At least I hope that's what we don't do. More so today we find prevalent in the culture, the, the word that's coming out and being popularized for it is, is quiet quitting, which doesn't make sense, but it's this concept that we're finding with a lot of the younger workforce of, in, with a work history of jobs and large corporations as they expanded, taking too much of an impact on people's lives with the expansion of technology, you can be accessed 24-7. And for-profit companies were very quick to take advantage of that. And so now there's this culture of, I'm not going to do anything more than what is least expected of me. I'm not going to work harder and stay longer and do these things for that promotion, we are entered into an arrangement where you are going to provide me this pay and I will meet these responsibilities and that's it. That can creep into our faith and that, that's a lack of, of diligence. You may, maybe it's easier to talk about what diligence is not, to clarify. It's not, it's not striving, right? It's, it's, not, it's not gritting it out. It's not impressing God with how much, you know, we're willing to, to, to break our back or, or flex our schedule or empty our bank accounts for him. But diligence is, is not waiting on God to force you to be sanctified. It's not procrastinating. Procrastination would, would be the, the opposite of diligence. This concept of, of hurrying along the progress of your faith versus, I, you know, you got a point, Lord, maybe I'll think about that tomorrow. You know, I struggle to think of, of any worthwhile accomplishment 
in, in any field that can be attained in absence of diligence. I don't care if you are a, a child prodigy. The reality is, unless you are diligent in retaining maybe that advantage that you were given at a young age, someone will pass you. Because they will hurry up along their progression of that art or of that feat of strength or of that athletic endeavor or that business proposition. There's, there's, <laughs> there's nothing that the world would put in the category of excellence that can be attained without diligence, but I can't think of anything more excellent than becoming more and more like Jesus in this life, and so I can't expect that to be accomplished without diligence either. In business, there's a term called due diligence. Due diligence, and it's, you know, gaining a, a proper understanding of a possible investment. You know, like, it, it doesn't even have to be in, 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 uh, in business. If you're going to buy a car, you should drive it. You should have a mechanic look at it if you're not so inclined. That's considered doing the due diligence. You want to get a good picture of what it is you are going to invest in. And the thing is, God has already made this investment in us. Like, he, he purchased us. He didn't weigh the cost. He didn't say, you're worth the investment and you're not worth the investment. He said, I bought you. I bought you with my son's blood. Now I'm calling you to exercise diligence retroactively. So now we have this charge, we have this task, we have this challenge to perform due diligence on our own lives in response to the investment that God has already made. And oftentimes, I think the best way to perform an assessment or to get a feel for the things you value or what you're prioritizing in life is to look at your schedule. Diligence, a lot of times in the Christian life, comes down to an analysis of, of your economy of time. How do you use your time? You can look at a person's calendar, and you can look at a person's checkbook, and you can learn an awful lot. And it's not to be condemning. Sure, there are always going to be areas for, for growth, for change, for adjustment. Because that is the Christian walk. But Paul is saying this is, this is a good place to start. Be diligent in looking at your life and hurrying up the process of what God is willing to do. Because he's a gentleman. He's not, he's not going to, he will outweigh you. 
and you will be the only loser in that situation. But Peter says, if, if you hurry up the process, God will go as fast as you're willing to. And that always works out for our benefit because that's God's character. So, so Peter says, with all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, then perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. And people like to argue about the nature and the relationship of, of lists like this. Because, I mean, we like lists. When we make a list, we put the most important thing at the top and the least important thing at the bottom. Okay, well, maybe he did it in reverse. That's got to be it, right? Because, because it, it's, it's like bricks because faith comes first and, and love is like the capstone. So is that how this is ordered? It's, it's an ascension of faith and then you can stack virtue and then knowledge. I don't, I don't think so. And it's, it's not like beads on a bracelet that will then adorn your life in perfect Christianity. It's not like, okay, I got the faith bead, right? I remember when I said yes to Jesus and I put that on and then I got the virtue bead and by the time I get to the top, I'll be an Eagle Scout. I'm, you know, they're all the same metaphors. It's not like dominoes of, well, if you invest in faith, then that'll turn into virtue, and then, and then one leading into the next and the next. Super helpful, Rob. You tell us a bunch of stuff. It's not. Get to the point. I think it's best to look at a list like this like a tree. It's not uniform. It is one thing. There are certainly relationships between all the, the different aspects. As we go through them, we'll see how one will fuel another or hinder another. But it's too organic to, I think, impose a rigid structure on it or uh, a set of rules that says, well, these are the exact relationships between these seven things. And this is why this is first, and this is why this is last, and this is how the middle's ordered. In reading different opinions about this, it kind of felt like really smart people were arguing about the color of a pen. They're like, it's black. And they're like, no, it's really dark blue. I'm like, oh, I think it might be graphite. And I'm just like, all I want is a pen to write my grocery list. So let's just do it. <laughs> but it says, add to your faith. Add to your faith virtue. And of course, faith is listed first. And I think for the reason because in this conversation, it has to come before anything else. That's where it all starts. And this word add that joins all these things is, is a great way of thinking about their relationship because the word that is translated add here is also the word from, from which we get the word chorus or choreography. It's like a hand in hand in unison. So 
You can imagine all these things, these, these seven emphases to be working together, choreographed with one another to make a, a beautiful, vibrant faith. It says, add to your faith virtue. Virtue has really become a convoluted term in the English language. I think a, a much better translation would be valor or courage or zeal. The idea here is that on top of our faith, it should be active and energized and alert. We're not going to get anywhere in our sanctification with a, a sleepy faith, with an apathetic faith, without zeal, without valor and boldness and courage. We're going to be putting the brakes on this process of, of hurrying up along our faith. It says, to virtue knowledge, add knowledge. This word translated knowledge is different than the one we discussed last week, which was an intimate, personal, all-knowing knowledge, like a relationship. This is knowledge that we would use in the more traditional sense, like, you're going to learn today kind of knowledge. Our mind is such a great resource. And I think this exhortation to add to our faith knowledge certainly includes, but is not limited to Scripture. Because as I look around the room, there are so many people with skills and, and knowledge that they have developed and attained and grown and can yet use for the glory of the kingdom. Primarily, yes. The more we can know about God's word, the more all these things will benefit. But God is glorified in our learning. He did not give us the, the most incredible computer mankind has ever known in between our ears to waste. He will use it if we make good investments in it. Add to knowledge self-control. I go back to verse 4 when I think about self-control, and it says that we've escaped the corruption of the world through lust. And my favorite definition for lust is any desire that has not been ordained by God. Any desire that has not been ordained by God. We have a lot of those desires, and they put on a lot of different masks and forms. And self-control can keep us out of a lot of problems by having power, by living in the power that was purchased for us when Christ's blood broke the bonds of sin and death that reigned over our body, that we could exercise that. It's why it's a fruit of the Spirit. We were powerless over sin. To self-control perseverance. The word translated perseverance really means to wait, to wait in place, to stand firm. And I think that 
wars it wars against my nature that the thought of perseverance is to stand there and take it to not step backwards to not allow the front line the battle line to collapse and that's so needed in our Christian walk because we all one we always face opposition we're always facing opposition so to persevere is to not lose ground to stay planted where we are and then there's also that concept of it's not charging forward we like to charge forward charging forward feels good but a lot of times God in his wisdom and in his growing and sanctifying us says no you just stay right where you are just persevere in this place if I want you to come forward I'll call you forward and I'll give you the strength to do that but right now you're gonna be strong right there it certainly touches you know the the concept of, of maybe something we might consider more along the lines of patience and Elmo has my favorite definition of patience and it's waiting with a happy heart because that's real patience waiting with an unhappy heart is stubbornness waiting with an unhappy heart is bitter immovability neither of those are going to get us more and more resembling our savior and to perseverance godliness and godliness is a really tricky word because this is one of the only places this particular word is is translated this way most often this word points towards worship and so this this idea of godliness is really living life with an eye on god living life always with our attention towards the lord and living a life of worship that might be making dinner that might be sitting here in church it's a broad view of worship but when we think about really godly people sometimes we get that confused with with piety and that I don't think is what's being pointed at here but it reminds me of the John Piper quote that that Patrick referenced a couple weeks ago that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him and so if we're always living a life of worship always experiencing everything around us with an eye on heaven that will create a godly man a godly woman someone who when you experience them they're not a priest they you know 
now I'm lost in my own words because all I can think of is like really pious people. Um, but someone who you encounter and you can sense the nearness between them and the Lord and the largeness that the Lord takes in their life, whether they're mowing their grass or changing their kids' diapers or taking out the trash or collecting the change at a toll booth or filing paperwork. God reigns large. To godliness add brotherly kindness. A better translation would be love of the brethren. We're going to spend eternity together. We should start getting along here. I think it's always easier. Love of the brethren is oftentimes easier than love of the world. We love our friends before we love our enemies. And so this is one of those places where I think there definitely are some through lines in Peter's arrangement of this list. But if we can't love those within the family of God well, if we can't love those with whom we share the most important foundation, we're certainly going to struggle to love those outside of God's family. Now when Peter wrote this, he didn't even go into the brief explanations that we did. But that wasn't his purpose. He said up front, well, afterwards, but we read it up front. He said, you know, you guys already know this. You already know this. This should not be new information to you. I'm not writing to let you know something new. I'm writing to you to stir you up. I'm writing to you to remind you how exciting this is. I'm writing to you to remind you how important this is because I won't always be here to do it. You're like, okay, well, like, yeah, those things are good, but I don't feel super excited. That's where he's about to go in verse 8. It's just these seven things. You want to be excited? You want to be stirred up? If these seven things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Barren and unfruitful, they're, they're both the same word. They can be translated useless, unemployed, without action, incapable of action. You focus on these things. You be diligent. To pour these things into your life, you are never going to feel useless in the kingdom of God. You're never going to feel useless, period. You are never going to feel like you don't have a job on this earth. You want to talk about exceedingly great and precious promises? There's one right there. Invest in these things and you are always going to feel equipped always ready for action. But if you don't invest in these things, if you lack these things, you'll be short-sighted, even to blindness. This, this concept of short-sightedness is, is one who's always focused on the present. 
somebody who's so focused on on just what's in front of them that they lose the larger bigger picture and we live in a time that is busier for men and women than anything ever has been in all of human history and it is so easy for us to be short-sighted because we're exposed to more information more obligations more interactions than any man or woman to come before us ever has so this is such a word for today because we can become so consumed with the busyness around us even well-intentioned good-hearted busyness around us that we can lose the bigger picture that we can lose the bigger picture that we can choose to invest our time and our money and our thoughts and our energy into things that are not on this list and if we do that for long enough you know what else we'll lose sight of we'll lose sight of the wretched life that God saved us from said short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins I've had moments like that when the Christian walk feels really hard when it feels like work and not investment and there have been times when the thought that puts Jesus back on the throne of my heart is an honest, sober remembering of the person that he saved. Because I tried a lot of things and they left me much more dissatisfied than whatever tribulation whatever suffering i experience under the cross but we can forget that we chose this life and for good reason because we tried everything else we looked at the world and we said this is terrible take it lord you can have everything everything the whole thing because I tried and I crashed the bus hard and I crashed the bus in like a really smelly lake so my bus is broken and everything smells and I'm drowning and this is terrible whatever you want just take it and then we walk with him long enough he cleans up enough of the slop off of us and he gets us something else to drive and we think you know what I'm pretty good at this this is all right you know what Lord let me let me drive for a while I actually don't like where you're going I had a trip planned earlier I had this sweet bus uh, it was awesome we were driving by the seaside I mean it was no we forget That's what, if, if these are not the things that we're focused on if hurrying up our faith if if wholeheartedly participating with God in what he is doing in us if if trying to run as fast as we can and daring God to keep up 
is not what we're focused about, then we will forget that that is the whole premise. We will get lost in the busyness. We will become short-sighted. The second we take our eye off of God, it reminds me of 1 Peter. He's like, yo, everything you're experiencing in this life right now, the way to handle it is to be sure you always have one hand on heaven. Because this reality is like temporary, like just a blip. It's that same concept, but just within the context of our lives. You've always got to keep a hand on the gospel. Otherwise, you're going to forget where you came from, and you're going to start wandering back that direction. He says, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent. More diligent? We spent the first half of tonight talking about being diligent in adding those seven things to our face. But now Peter says, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. It's not making our call and election sure in the sense that we have to guarantee or secure our faith. Our call and election is sure before God. That's the beginning and end of the story. But there are times we live our lives when it might not be sure to us. I know I've certainly had those moments, and, and many people that I talk to have. You have one of those days where I don't even know if I'm saved. I think if we're having one of those days, we've made a wrong turn. We make wrong turns, it's okay. But if you don't want to have any of those days, invest in these things. Joyfully, wholeheartedly, hurry up this process and you won't ever find yourself saying, oh, I just don't know. And neither will anybody else. When we invest in these things, your call and election will not only be sure to you, it will be sure of the people that are looking at you. Because fruit is sure. People will see. You won't have to convince anyone that you're born again. You won't have to convince anyone of the hope and the life that is in you. Yeah, it's going to be sure. They're going to be sure. Whether they believe you or not, they're going to know. And it says, for so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. An abundant entry into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, before you think about what an abundant entry into heaven could possibly look like, we have to reason that if he says, you do these things, you focus on this, there will be an abundant entry waiting for you in heaven. We have to realize that that means there's something less than an abundant entry. 
that the climax of our eternity might be anticlimactic. I think of it like this. There's a, a big, long marathon race. Think about the New York, what is it, the New York City Marathon? Is that what they call it? It's a big one. Get to the finish line. Been running for hours. And when those first people cross the line, the sponsors are there. <laughs> people want to give them towels and water. People want to interview them. They're getting their picture taken. They're going on the cover of Runner's R Us magazine. There was a lot of people in that race. And the first guy may have finished in, how long does it take to run a marathon? I should have looked this up. We'll say an hour and a half. Good, you're not runners. I'll make it up. Don't call me on it. I haven't been a runner in a long time. Uh, the first guy finishes in like an hour and a half, and there's such fanfare, and then people pour in, and they're still, oh, what an accomplishment. Or maybe it's an Iron Man, and they've been at this for, for days. Well, if the first guy finishes in an hour and a half, how many of those people are still there for when slow us finish the marathon in nine hours? Did we finish? Yeah. Is our name going to be on the sheet of marathon finishers? Yeah. But it's not going to be an abundant finish. There's not going to be a giant fanfare. And I'm not going to sit here and make doctrine off of one verse. And an entrance into heaven is going to be better than anything that we've ever experienced here. But let's not quiet quit as Christians because an entrance to heaven is part of our comp package. It uh, doesn't matter if I just do the bare minimum. I, my theology is straight. I get it. I'm going to heaven. Okay. Theologically, I, I can't disagree with you, but gosh, that's a bummer. I want so much more for you. This is not what you felt like when you first signed up for this. Where are those feelings? We want to stir up those feelings. Nobody gets married to say like, yeah, you know, we'll split the chores and pretty much tolerate each other for the rest of our lives. And, you know, you be faithful and I'll be faithful. And that's, that's cool. It'd be all right. No, let's not do that with the Lord. Let's take this investment and pour it into those things that, that we could be stirred up fresh with just the, the beauty and the life and, and the hope of what our salvation promises. 
all things that pertain to life and godliness. Great and precious promises. Partakers of the divine nature. Father, it's, it's impossible. It's impossible to grasp. It's impossible to grasp what an eternity with you is going to be like. But Father, we, we can know for certain the experiences that we've had with you. Lord, those times when you were realer and more present and just more alive than the person standing in front of us. And God, we so long for the diligence to live every day like that. Lord, give us the strength to do everything we can. Father, feed our, our hearts and our minds and our souls because you know us inside and out. Father, we know you won't do the work for us, but we know enough to know that we can't do anything without you. So Lord, give us the strength to, to do everything we can and, and, and trust you for everything, both at the same time. That we would partner together and that we would just make beautiful things in a broken world that just testify to your glory until all we will see and know and experience and revel in is your glory for all of eternity. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.